From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, with taking a look at what has been happening earlier today and throughout the day at Crab Park in Vancouver. This morning, after we moved over here last night, in came the whole contingent of them. It seems like there's more of them every time. Far more of them than us. Almost like a military squad, all in their uniforms. you got to move. you got to take this down and ha- have it ready to move. I don't understand what happens between that and how we have to move over here. They, th- they basically threatened us to, uh, to take it themselves, right? Um, they, they told us that we had to leave this park, and we were told to come here from Strathcona, you know? So, um, and they didn't talk about a designated spot, and we were over there, and now we're back there again, but there's there's reasons that, that not everybody necessarily wants to be in that spot, and I have my reasons, you know? So that was Robert Bruvold and James Thompson, two of the residents of Crab Park, and they were speaking earlier today with Global News. And joining me now is Fiona York, a Crab Park advocate, to talk a little bit more about this. Fiona, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you for having me. So what has been happening? What is going on at Crab Park today? Well, I mean, listening to those comments, it's really quite emotional, and it was really um, very dramatic. There was a very aggressive, um, escalating, um, and a massive amount of intimidation and aggressive enforcement this morning. Um, and I, was, I would say enforcement of bylaws, but in fact, it's not even enforcement of bylaws because it seems that they're going above and beyond what the bylaws actually say, which is that people do have a right to shelter overnight in every park in Vancouver um, and daytime sheltering in the designated area. But from what people are saying, they're actually being told to leave the park. Um, They do have the right to shelter overnight, according to bylaws. So it's just a real escalation, a real show of aggression um, on the part of the park rangers and the police uh, forcing people to move. This has been happening um, through this week. So yesterday, there was also a really massive display of uh, enforcement with um, park rangers and officers. There are about 15 to 20 in total, and they very aggressively seized and removed um, tents and told people to move. They seized probably like 12 people's properties, most of it discarded, some of it uh, perfectly good tents and materials that were ripped as they were being discarded, taken away in trucks, um, probably will not be possible to get it to have it back because we know from previous experience that trying to track down belongings, it takes months of work and often it's already been discarded by the time we get through that. Um, so just a really uh, major escalation and um, a, a big show of, of aggression against people who are homeless and trying to find shelter in parks. And Fiona, when I look at what the park board put out when they were asked about this earlier today, and the park board put out a statement saying that beginning yesterday, uh, park rangers are carrying out the park control bylaw compliance on the south side of Crab Park outside of the general manager's designated area. Uh, It goes on to say, it says, this is not a decampment. We're not asking people to leave. We are asking for people to comply with the bylaw and that park rangers will be prepared to remove non-essential items and store essential items for people sheltering in the park. It it sounds like from what you're describing that, that, that what you're describing and what the park board is saying is happening don't quite match up. 
No, I'd say absolutely not. And I guess I'd also point out another thing, which is that um, there's just a lack of communication generally between the park board and the residents of the park who are most impacted. One of the things in the recent court case that actually uh, ended up in the establishment of that designated area, the Bamberger court case, was this a topic of procedural fairness, which means that when people are disproportionately impacted by a decision or by an order or by um, a bylaw, that they need to ha- they have the right to communication and the right to information about what's happening and what might be happening. Now, clearly, this this uh, information that you're receiving is different. It's above and beyond what the residents have actually received and what people impacted have actually received. So, just this real disproportionate uh, lack of communication and information, uh, the park board actually cut off weekly meetings that were being held um, since April of this year. Um, since April of last year, they were just, for some reason, ended a month ago. And so there's been no communication and the ranges have been very uh, clear to not communicate with supporters and advocates about what's been going on. And then, as you say, there is a real discrepancy between what they're saying and what's actually happening on the ground. They're not just talking about uh, unimportant items. We're talking about survival gear, tents. Um, in front of my eyes yesterday, tents were being removed, thrown in the back of trick pickup trucks, tarps and tents being thrown in the garbage, being ripped as they were done. So um, things that people need to survive. So their their belongings, their housing, their homes. And there aren't really unimportant items. People need things to survive. They need things to um, to live their life, to to get by, uh, especially during these cold conditions. We just heard about the weather. It's raining. It's cold. People are waking up at 8 a.m. to have this and to be evicted and to lose all their belongings and probably not to get back. There's a real kind of fiction around storage of belongings and <laughs> almost entirely people are not getting their belongings back when this happens and that's a whole kind of study in itself about um, the difficulty of of retrieving belongings and just the attitudes around belongings and uh, attaching this unimportance to them and and people not being entitled to have access to their belongings and really it just comes down to like basic survival for people who are trying to get by out of doors when there isn't housing and not being ha- not being given that option. Uh, you mentioned housing. I was curious uh, because uh, it, it, it has grown as far as the number of people living in Crab Park, whether we're talking, I think, about the, the sanctioned area where, where they can stay during the day as opposed to, to where you can shelter overnight. Is there a plan? Have, has anybody left Crab Park or been offered housing? Certainly, um, Crab Park, the encampment, has been around for two and a half years now, and it has been sanctioned for about a year and a half. And over that time, obviously, people who are staying in the park are seeking housing. They're not just there because they want to be outdoors. They're seeking housing. And there are people who secure housing and who leave. And part of the... Um, the issue about being together in an encampment is that there is access to outreach workers and people are in one area where they can be found from day to day and there can be some back and forth with outreach workers so people actually can secure housing uh, rather than if they're on the street and being moved from place to place where they can't really do that follow-up and they're less likely. So um, people do get housing. There is a change in the number of people that are there but also this year, just uh, a month ago, there was a release in the homelessness uh, point in time count for this year, there's a 30% increase. It's now at 4,800 for Metro Vancouver. So it's a 30% increase. It's the highest increase since the count began. Uh, And the designated area is really quite tiny and arbitrary that was set up. 
I would argue that there should be designated areas in many parks in different parts of the city that people have access to, and that there should be at least a corresponding 30% increase in the designated area in Crab Park to account for this 30% increase in homelessness. Obviously, people need a place to go. Obviously, there isn't space. There isn't housing. We know that there's a need for housing. We know that there's a housing crisis. And now this sheltering in parks needs to be considered as part of that continuum because there is nowhere else to go. Uh, And Fiona, what happens at this point on? Because it sounds like park rangers are going to be continuing uh, carrying out uh, this, what what they're calling the the compliance. I know there was a park ranger that was injured earlier today. How do you see this continuing? It seems like there's going to be a continuation of escalation. Um, It seems like it's similar to what happened on Hastings Street on April 5th, where there was uh, the massive eviction and decampment and takedown of the Hastings Street camp. And then there was that continuing um, maintenance or monitoring or surveillance of people staying uh, in tents on Hastings Street. And so I feel like that might be what's happening here, that there's going to be this ongoing day-by-day um, monitoring to ensure that people are not staying in that area. But again, this is really contrary to the bylaws that state that people do have a right to shelter overnight in parks. And so that should continue rather than hearing what we heard earlier from people saying that they're being told not to come back to the park and not to stay in the park. They do have that right to shelter overnight. They do obviously have the right to stay in the designated area, but really there needs to be consideration that it's it's too small for the number of people who are homeless. We know that. And there needs to be also that consideration of people and just their human rights and dignity. This is definitely also a display of Indigenous colonial violence because two of the people today that were arrested violently are Indigenous and they're the ones that are being held while the supporter is not the person that's being held. They're still actually being held in jail. Um, There also just a month ago, the Federal Housing Advocate, which is the national watchdog of housing and encampments, released an interim report about encampments and talked about there needs to be a prohibition of forced eviction. That's the number one recommendation. This should not be happening. There needs to be respectful, respecting the rights of Indigenous people and ending the practice of using policing and bylaws to evict homeless people from encampments. So this is being called upon on a national level. I think there's a real dichotomy between this national, what's happening on the national level and court cases, which more and more are showing that people do have the right to shelter and are rights holders when they're staying in encampments and what's happening on this local municipal level with this kind of enforcement. All right, Fiona, we'll have to leave it there for today, but thank you so much for making time for us. Appreciate it. Thank you for speaking to me. It is Wednesday afternoon, and that means it is time for our weekly travel segment with Travel Best Bets founder and president, Claire Newell. Claire, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jill. What a weird day for travel for me. I'm like all excited about um, some Black Friday sales that are coming out. And then one of the gals in my office had a client going through Portland Airport. And then this morning we come in and heard that there were three shots fired in the TSA security lineup at Portland Airport around 11 p.m. Thank goodness nobody was hurt, but it's kind of scary to hear that going on in an airport. But the a woman was taken away and now is facing attempted murder charges. Like, it's just... Mm. Ah, all over the map. Um, anyway, it, nothing to do with what I actually sent 
to you. <laughs> However, there is a lot of other stuff going on. And one of the best stories I think that I sent to you is right at the top. IATA is once again reported an uptick in post-pandemic passenger air traffic. They've just released their September data. Um, they're always a bit behind, but we watch this really, really closely. And September this year rose 30.1% compared to September of last year. I mean, I guess if you were traveling, you would know it. Everything was full and um, kind of a carryover from the the, the hot uh, summer Europe season. And then a lot of people heading back to school and then you know starting a business travel up again. Anyway, the bottom line is globally, traffic uh, worldwide air air traffic is now at 97.3% of pre-COVID levels, which is really good. We never thought we'd ever see that number. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I mean, almost 100%. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. And I think um, I was just taking a look at the numbers for the, for what's, what they predict at least for the Thanksgiving long weekend, which is always really, really busy. And um, I was just reading that AAA released their forecast and they're expecting that the air travel in the U.S. could be the busiest it's been in 18 years. So mm. more than 55 million Americans are expected to be traveling over 50 miles or more from home, which is really what they look at as traveling, um, which is up from last year. And then for air, they're expecting 49 million um, sorry, 4.7 million will be flying, which is the highest number since 2005. We'll have to see if that actually transpires. Um, but they're, they're looking at the, the air seats that are already booked. And I don't expect that number to go down. If anything, I think it'll go up with last minute bookings. All right. A lot of people still traveling and getting back into it. That is good news. Uh, this is something we have talked about a lot. And good to see that Air Canada has new policies for passengers with disabilities because it seems like every time we talk about this, another horror story comes uh, comes about. Yeah, they the very same day that this actually came out with them kind of explaining what their plan will be. There, it's basically called Air Canada's Accessibility Plan 2023 to 26. You can actually go in. It's a three-year strategy that they released. They released it back in June, but they kind of came out with it um, and explained what they're planning to do. And some of the changes are priority boarding, seating near the front of their section, um, better communications, more staff training, storage of mobility aids in the cabin whenever possible. I think that's really key because a lot of, um, we've heard a lot, especially with wheelchairs getting damaged or lost. Um, and that's just really unacceptable. And the rate of how often it was happening was really high. It's not just here in Canada, but also right across North America and carriers. So this is, I'm hoping this will make some significant changes. The same day it came out though, Jill, they were slapped with a $100,000 fine um, for uh, issues with um, passengers with disabilities. So they, they wanted to reiterate the fact that they are trying to remove barriers and make it simpler and more comfortable and consistent and reliable for, com uh, for customers with disabilities. Which, uh, when we've talked about this as well, uh, there are some, uh, the opinion being that it is going to take those kinds of fines and there needs to be a monetary penalty to make sure, and it's not just Air Canada, but to make sure that airlines are taking this seriously. 
Yeah, I mean, if if, if that's your way of tr- uh, of moving around in uh, like your wheelchair, it is your lifeline, and so. I think that I think you're right. I think this is it's about time there needs to be accountability to, to in order to see change. Uh, it's you know this is this is good work that they've they've put this plan in place. Now it's time to like kind of put their their money where their mouth is and hopefully it will actually make change. And uh, let's talk about some destinations as well. We talked a little bit about Thanksgiving holiday travel, how that's going to be a a big, big holiday this year, a big weekend this year. And Claire, Mm -hmm. we've talked about the theme parks and different things that people know are very expensive, but they can be big trips that you plan. But a lot of them are going to get even more expensive. Oh, yeah, we know. We heard that Disney's going up. I mean, I think it was... Less than a decade ago, Disney was $99, and now it's like 250 US dollars to go in if you're just show, rocking up and showing up at the park to pay their one day and you aren't, you know, you don't, you haven't bought them ahead or, or anything or don't have any promo codes. So it's very, very expensive. And, you know, it's, it's no, no surprise Universal Studios and Islands of Adventure are now going to be more expensive. They obviously have the demand because people are still going. So Universal Orlando theme park raised their their ticket prices just again following that move by rival Disney. Um so single park entrance there will be uh, a minimum of a minimum of $10 to between 119 to 179. It all depends on the day because it's um pricing that is so it's a minimum of $10 is the increase in the price not you can't get tickets for $10. Sorry if I didn't make that clear. <laughs> um because it's not that. It's 119 to $179. Um park hopper tickets which is what most people end up doing. Uh, 174 to 234, uh, up from 164 to 214. So again, you know, not significant, but if you're multiplying that by four or five, it all of a sudden becomes this huge whack. Oh, yeah. And and I was looking at that, too, thinking, well, it makes sense. It's not a huge surprise, given the price of everything has gone up. But like you say, if we're talking about a family or a number of people, that's it does add up. It is a big increase. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, I want to hit a couple of stories that just came down today that sure. I, um, I, I wanted to just quickly touch base. WestJet has set out a, a real growth plan, um, for transatlantic expansion coming this summer of 2024. They're going to be bringing back some of their Europe flights from Eastern Canada. They didn't have them last year. So Toronto to Dublin is coming back. Halifax to London is coming back. They're also instituting a flight from Calgary to Keflavik, Iceland, and from Newfoundland to Gatwick. So they're kind of kind of coming out gung-ho this year. So I just thought I would mention that. Um, one other interesting story was that Canada Jetlines, now we've talked about some of the low-cost carriers that have come out post-pandemic. Canada Jetlines was one of them. Porter's made a really strong play and they're not as ultra low cost, but they're a, a more of a, they've been around for a long time, but Flair and Lynx. But Canada Jetlines has just launched a vacations arm. Most of them are going to be out of the East. But when I mention a vacations arm, here we have Air Canada Vacations, WestJet Vacations, which also owns Sunwing Vacations. We used to have Transat. Um, out East, they still have Transat. 
and they will be getting Jetlines vacations. So they'll be going to places from Toronto, like Montego Bay, Jamaica, Cancun, Orlando, Vegas, and that list uh, will grow. Hopefully, they'll get some departure points out west that will give some competition to some of the players that are in the marketplace out west, but we don't have that much choice. So good news that we're starting to at least see a few more companies offer those package vacations that we all love. Brian, I'm glad you brought that up because I was curious, and even when you were talking about the WestJet growth plan, and and yes, they're, they're bulking it up, but like you said, mainly in the east. So does that mean for people here in BC, even if you're kind of, if you're hoping to benefit from this, you're still flying through Calgary? That's right. For, for you are, if you wanted to do that Calgary to Iceland. Um, if you, they also, it's kind of the hub and spoke model. So WestJet is using Calgary as their hub. So even if we wanted to fly WestJet and because say we're, we have points with them or, or we're, um, have status with them, you'd go backtrack. You'd go Vancouver, Calgary, Calgary, Tokyo. Or if you wanted to take advantage of their, some of the Europe flights that they don't fly from here, you'd go Vancouver to Calgary and then continue on to Europe. It is, in my mind, because a lot of the destinations in Europe do have, they're not nonstop. They do have a stop. I like to stop early in the trip. So mm. I like to stop on my way. And if it's a 45 minute, an hour flight to Calgary, and then I'm happy to just get myself to sleep. <laughs> However, I do that. Um, I don't look pretty when I do it, but I, <laughs> when I'm flying, um, then you, you, then you land. And so I don't like the stop in Toronto kind of halfway. Right. And then continue on. So I don't find it that bad. I think people should be, I, I would encourage people to look at it because they can end up saving quite a lot of money. My best friend did it. Uh, she has two daughters in London and she has done those stop in Calgary and continuing on to London to see them. And, and it has saved her a significant amount of money on many occasions. Okay, something uh, to think about. Uh, one other story too, I thought this was interesting. Uh, the red-eye flights, not for everyone, only uh, really if you can sleep on planes. But uh, I didn't realize Southwest, uh, not really into this, but looking yeah. at adding them. I didn't realize. I thought that Southwest Airlines would use those aircraft as much as possible. And that means keeping them on the ground for basically turnover, fuel up, getting every, all the, the necessary drinks and meals on and then continue those flights. But that's not the case. So their, their CEO just came out and said that they're hinting at looking at red eye flights, um, into their schedule for the very first time. It would just make it much, much more efficient of an airline. But the, you know, what they will likely deploy would be the ones that we see as red eyes, the West Coast of the U.S. to Hawaii, which people, for whatever reason, because, I, well, I know why, because Hawaii is such a popular destination. People will take any flight to be able to get there. They often will look at that first. Um, and some of the longer flights, maybe to Mexico, Central America and the Caribbean. So it'll be interesting to see if that happens. I think that there will be demand for it. People like Southwest. I was just in Palm Springs over the long weekend and uh, I was right beside a gate that had Southwest flights and there were a lot of happy people. It just um, I was chatting with a couple, few of them. They got really good rates over the long weekend and you know, they didn't mind walking on board and getting their seat because they're not assigned. It's really interesting process if you've never flown them uh, and you get the opportunity to and you save a lot of money, you should consider it. It's, it's an interesting airline. It's a very, very successful model. All right. That is Southwest. Let's get people flying. What deals do you have today? Well, none that I sent you because Black <laughs> Friday deals came. Some of them came out early this morning, so I wanted to share them. Um, Veradero Cuba. This is a great deal for January. So January 4th through until the end of the month, air and seven nights in a beachfront all-inclusive resort. Remember, this is in the Caribbean. 
uh, $645, hmm. the taxes of $480. Um, another one that came out was to the Riviera Maya, also for January 10th to the 31st of January, Air and Seven Nights, four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort, $899, the taxes of $614. And then I thought I would share this river cruise because they're doing uh, Black Friday where it's a two-for-one. So this is doing the Danube, which is probably the most pop popular river cruise that um, we see. July 12th, August 11th, October 11th, or October 29th of next year, the seven-night all-inclusive river cruise. That, that means meals, beverages, gratuities, sightseeing, tours, transfers, all included. The first guest pays $4,099, taxes of $476. The second is free. They just pay the taxes of $476. It's a really great buy. Uh, it works out to 5100 I think, about there, um, total for two people, including taxes, which oh. is a great buy for a river cruise if that's been on your bucket list. All right. I know for a lot of people, it certainly has. Claire, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Talk to you soon. Bye, Jill. Maybe you have had a dream of living on your own private island, not too far from civilization, but still offering you that level of privacy you can't get at many other places. Well, there are three islands that are now for sale. They're not too, too far from Metro Vancouver. Two are in the Gulf Islands. One is in Cowichan Lake, and it is the price tag that is surprising to a lot of people. Joining me now to talk more about this is Mark Lester, Senior Vice President with Unique Properties with Colliers. Mark, thank you so much for taking some time today. Well, thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, how rare is it, or, or is it rare, to have three small islands that are all up for sale at the same time? It's not unusual for there to be uh, various different islands for sale at any given time. You know, the BC coast is fairly big, uh, so we can get islands on the Sunshine Coast or islands up in the Discovery Islands or farther north. Um, you know, at the moment, there are the two Gulf Islands and there's the island in, in Cowichan Lake, uh, but that's not necessarily unusual, no. All right, so tell us a little bit about these. Can you describe kind of how big the islands are and uh, what they look like? Sure. What I mean, two of these islands are my listings, another is... is um, being handled by an associate here in the office. Um, Fane Island is is the is the larger of the Gulf Island properties that's currently for sale. It's a little under two acres. Um, it has a, a home on it. It has um, a, a complete septic system. It has a, a, a little harbor with a with a breakwater in it. Um, it's located just off the east coast of Pender Island, so it's quite accessible and it's a great location. Um, uh, it's it's a really nice topography. It's got some nice meadows and beautiful arbutus trees, and and really quite quite beautiful um, uh, topography. Uh, Little Shell Island is another one that I have listed. It's about an acre. It is quite close to um, um, Sydney in, on Vancouver Island on the Saanich Peninsula. It's about a five minute drive actually, or a five minute boat ride. It's it's very very close. Uh, it's a it's one acre. It has a small cabin on it. Uh, it has a, a nice little dock that can accommodate most boats, not huge boats, but certainly you know boats that most people would commute in. Um, it, uh, um, it it doesn't have a lot of other infrastructure right now, um, but it certainly could. That's all very doable, and and the the owner has uh, has done a fair amount of the work 
that would be needed in order to be able to uh, get any permits that would be necessary to build on it. Um, the, the island in Cowichan Lake is about two and a quarter acres. Um, now, it has quite a nice house on it. It's a timber frame house. Um, it has a dock, a generator uh, hut, um, a little um, sleeping cabin or, or, you know, what we might call a bunkie. Um, and uh, it, it's now it's sort of on the far end of Cowichan Lake. So it's a, it's a bit of a boat ride to get there. Um, but um, it's quite a pretty little island as well. All right. Well, they all sound really, really lovely. And I mentioned the price. So, and again, it's not as not as though these are cheap listings. But I think when you think of your own island and a private island with a dwelling on it, uh, people tend to think that it would be much more than this. But am I right in saying that they are all listed at, at less than two million dollars? Yes, uh, Fane Island, the first one I described, is a million nine ninety five. Uh, Little Shell Island is a million three seventy five. And Island Seven, which is the one in Cowichan Lake, uh, that one is listed at a million five forty nine. So um, you know, all of these are are quite affordable in the context of certainly the Vancouver or the Victoria real estate markets, for sure. Right, because even if you were looking at, uh, say, the the Vancouver market, it would be not unheard of for even a, a modest townhouse to be listed at one point three million. Yeah, that's correct, for sure. So a different lifestyle, though. You mentioned how uh, accessible by boat that uh, that the islands are. But so so I would imagine any owner then to you would need to have your own boat. It's not as though there's a ferry service or any other way. That's correct. You, you really need to um, have your own boat. You need to know how to or be comfortable with operating your own boat. People obviously learn. I've I've sold islands to people who had never boated before, <laughs> but they they learn pretty quickly. And and you know what? There's there's a there's a, a real um, sort of unique quality to that that privacy that you get and that sense of um, you know owning your own kingdom with a with your with a, a moat around it. Um, you know and that's that's what people really love about private islands. There's there's just a it's it's hard to describe, but it's something that that there are many people many people really sort of um, gravitate towards. And you mentioned some of the services that uh, the islands have. Are there kind of the, the all the comforts that people like as far as power, internet, that kind of thing? Yeah, you know, I've been I've been selling private islands for about twenty five years, and when I started. Um, I, I actually wrote a, an article called 10 Things to Consider When Buying a Private Island. And one of the things was having a, a power supply, so shore power or a, a submarine cable supplying power and, and telephone service and, and those sorts of conveniences. And some island owners had spent a lot of money to put these services in. Now, off-grid systems are really sophisticated. And, and uh, you have things like Starlink or Smart Hub, which is a TELUS product, um, or just cell coverage that, that gives you great telephone and internet. Um, so you can be off the grid with a really great um, power system, um, rainwater collection, and you can live just like you're living in the city. You can have a washer and dryer, a dishwasher, anything that you really want powered by the sun. Hmm. And you mentioned the whole idea of wanting your own kingdom and the, that privacy. What about the isolation, though? It's not as though you're you're heading down to the pub at any point, really, or going to the grocery store. You you would have to plan those things out a lot in advance. So is it is it a level of isolation that maybe people may need to make sure they're really really aware of? Well, owning a private island isn't 
for everybody. And and that's one of the first things that I'll say to somebody when they're when they're looking. And and I've I've had conversations with people and said an island isn't for you. This is you know this you know here's an alternative, but maybe an island isn't isn't the right buy uh, purchase for you. But you know it is those people who really value that isolation. Um, and, and, but you're right, you know, you can't go to your neighbor to borrow a cup of sugar or a couple of eggs. You, you need to remember that you're bringing those things. Your building materials have to be brought on, your fuel to be able to power your generator, all of those things you need to bring onto that island. And then you need to take, you know, your garbage off. But, you, you know, the, what you get in return is, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to describe because, um, and I, you know, I often refer to recreational utility, and recreational utility might be different for different people. Some people love having neighbors and love being part of a community. Other people love that privacy and that isolation. So everybody's different. All right. And and when you were getting people interested or, or with the listings, and again, uh, there, there would still be a price, I think, for, for a lot of people. They, they don't have that amount of cash just sitting around. Uh, is it like a house in that can you get a mortgage for an island? Um, you can get a mortgage for an island. Um, mainstream lenders have have perhaps a, a tougher time understanding private islands. Um, you, you know, there's there the, if you're buying a house, for example, you might be able to get 75% of the purchase price in a mortgage. You're typically not getting that with a private island. But most private islands are purchased by people who don't need to finance, mm. and and so it's not as big an issue. So. Uh, we, we uh, you know, I typically don't run into that as, as being an impediment to being people buying a private island. Um, so, um, but it is possible to get financing. It's just more challenging than it would be the, you know, the house in the city. All right. Do you know why the current owners of the islands are selling them? Uh, you know, I, I, I can speak for the, the ones that I'm handling directly. One of them, uh, the folks live offshore. They live in Europe and you know, they just don't get to use it to the extent that they used to. And, and so it's time to time to pass that on to somebody else. Um, the other one, you know, the owner simply has other priorities. And, you know, I, I think island owners really do see themselves as stewards of unique real estate. And, and you know, people really like the idea of uh, passing that stewardship on to somebody else who is going to value it as much as they they did but i think when people get to the point where they're not able to utilize their islands you know spend the time there and really enjoy them it's time to pass it on to somebody else well and there are three opportunities if people are in the market for their own private island mark we'll leave it there for today but thank you again so much for coming on the show my pleasure thanks for having me Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.